morning's scripture reading is from 2 Chronicles chapter 29. So if you have your Bibles, please open them to, or actually, excuse me, 1 Chronicles chapter 29. 1 Chronicles chapter 29. And if you're using the Blue Pew Bibles in front of you, you'll find this passage on page 356. 356. Again, we'll be in 1 Chronicles chapter 29, and specifically verse 1 through 19. Please stand to honor the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. And David, the king, said to all the assembly, Solomon, my son, whom alone God has chosen, is young and inexperienced, and the work is great. For the palace will not be for man, but for the Lord God. So I have provided for the house of my God, so far as I was able, the gold for the things of gold, the silver for the things of silver, and the bronze for the things of bronze, the iron for the things of iron, and wood for the things of wood, besides great quantities of onyx and stones for setting, antimony, colored stones, all sorts of precious stones and marble. Moreover, in addition to all that I have provided for the holy house, I have a treasure of my own of gold and silver, and because of my devotion to the house of my God, I give it to the house of my God, 3,000 talents of gold, of the gold of Ophir, and 7,000 talents of refined silver for overlaying the walls of the house, and for all the work to be done by craftsmen, gold for the things of gold and silver for the things of silver." Who then will offer willingly, consecrating himself today to the Lord? Then the leaders of fathers' houses made their free will offerings, as did also the leaders of the tribes, the commanders of thousands and of hundreds, and the officers over the king's work. They gave for the service of the house of God 5,000 talents and 10,000 derricks of gold, 10,000 talents of silver, 18,000 talents of bronze, and 100,000 talents of iron. And whoever had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the house of the Lord in the care of Jehiel, the Gershonite. Then the people rejoiced because they had given willingly, for with a whole heart they had offered freely to the Lord." David the king also rejoiced greatly. Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly, and David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty, for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our Lord, and praise your glorious name. But who am I, and what is my people, that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you, and of your own have we given you. For we are strangers before you and sojourners, as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow, and there is no abiding. O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. I know, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. In the uprightness of my heart I have freely offered all these things, and now I have seen your people." 
who are present here, offering freely and joyously to you. O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their hearts toward you. Grant to Solomon, my son, a whole heart that he may keep your commandments, your testimonies, and your statutes, performing all, and that he may build the palace for which I have made provision. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. All right, let's pray again. Our gracious God, we thank you for this moment, the reading of your word, and now the preaching of it. And in this holy moment, we pray that your Holy Spirit would come and to give help, to open our eyes, to see your truth, to soften our hearts, to receive it, and that we might respond appropriately with faith and obedience. May you be glorified in this moment. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Happy New Year, church. I think it's a, it's a rare and, and welcomed experience to celebrate both Christmas Day and New Year's Day together as a church family. That doesn't happen very often. Now, as we turn over a new year, we want to reflect on the goodness of God and, and his faithfulness to us through all the highs and lows of this past year. And as we stand here on the first day of 2023, we look forward. We look forward in hopeful anticipation of how he's going to meet us in both the, the joys and the pains that we're sure to experience in this new year. Now, if you're following the sermon schedule that's found on that pew card in front of you, you probably came here thinking that we were going to start a new series in the uh, book of 1 Corinthians. And yes, that is our plan this year. We're going to go through 1 Corinthians, Lord willing. But we're going to actually push back the start of the series for two weeks. And what we plan on doing is to dedicate this Sunday and next Sunday to a short series on generosity. And I'll be upfront with you. We're timing this directly with the pledge campaign that's going on for our current building project. It's started uh, in the beginning of December. It's going to be ending at the end of this month in January. And so what we wanted to do is to dedicate two Sundays right in the middle of this campaign to lay out for you a biblical theology of generosity. We want you to generously give towards this building project, but not out of guilt, not out of pressure, not out of just a mere sense of obligation, but because your view of God, that is his greatness and his goodness, that your view of him has so reoriented your affections that you're now the kind of person who rejoices to give to the Lord. It's your joy to be generous. And friends, only theology, only theology can do that. No marketing campaign, no, no sales pitch is going to move the heart like good theology. And so what I've chosen for us is, is two texts for us to study today and next week. This morning's text is going to be out of the Old Testament. Next week, it's going to be from the New. And what I hope to demonstrate for you is that the people of God under both covenants, the people of God 
were motivated towards generosity by the exact same thing. It was by their experience of the goodness and grace of a great and sovereign God. And the whole, and the whole point, the whole point is that a personal encounter with the same God and the same goodness and grace is the one thing that is going to free your hearts up to give generously and joyously. So today, today we're going to look out of a passage out of 1 Chronicles 29. Next week we're going to be in 2 Corinthians 8. And what you're going to notice in today's text is that the people of God, the Old Testament people of God, uh, this is towards the latter reign of King David, they are engaged in their own building project. Like us, they're in the early fundraising phase. They're collecting donations from the people, from the leaders, from the king himself. And what's so striking is that their staggering generosity in giving is only outmatched by their surprising joy in rejoicing. Now, now the figures that you're going to see here in this text, the, the figures that were given of just how much they gave to this project, the figures are so astronomical that some have suggested that, that these can't be taken literally, that this must be hyperbole, that this must be an exaggeration, or, or there must be some kind of manuscript error. Maybe someone added an extra zero. There's no way. But what if? What if the reason we consider these amounts so unbelievable is because we find their joy so unfamiliar? Maybe. Maybe it's because we haven't experienced this kind of ceaseless joy. Maybe that's why we have a hard time taking these figures so seriously. So friends, my goal in this sermon is to boost your joy. To boost your joy by building your theology. And I want to try to put you in David's shoes, put you in the people of God's shoes as, as they gave well beyond their means, as, they, as their abundance of joy overflowed in a wealth of generosity. Let's put ourselves in their shoes. And so to get there, let's consider three things. You want to follow along, look in your bullets, and you see an outline. We're going to consider first the scope of their building project. Second, the sacrificial example of their king. And third, the source of their joyful generosity. So let's try to put ourselves in their shoes and see what they were experiencing. But let's first start by considering the scope of their building project. What exactly was David trying to build? Well, it's clear that he's trying to build the temple of God in Jerusalem. See, First and Second Chronicles are two parts of just one complete book that literally chronicles the various reigns of Israel's kings. Now, First Chronicles begins uh, with chapter after chapter of just these these genealogies. So it's it's it, it, it's tough going in the, in the in the early like nine chapters, and then you get to chapter ten, and they give you uh, Saul, and they talk about Saul, the first king of Israel, but he only gets one chapter. There's not much attention to him because most of the attention in the book, starting in chapter 11, is on David. And from chapter 11 to the very end, we're following his rise to the throne. Now, by chapter 29, this last chapter of the book, this is toward the end of David's reign. And now he's making preparations for his heir, for Solomon. 
And he wants Solomon to fulfill his ambition to build a temple in Jerusalem, uh, which is the capital city of Israel. It's the capital that David himself established. And what becomes apparent when you just read 1 Chronicles from start to finish is that this temple project at the very end, this temple project that David has been dreaming about for for years is the final step in a much bigger plan of his to establish the centrality of God within the nation of Israel. You see, that that had been his ambition from the very beginning of his reign. One of the first things that David did when he became king is that he recognized that the most symbolic way to emphasize the centrality of God is to bring the ark of God into Jerusalem. The ark, if, if you're not aware of what that is, It's a sacred chest that represented the very earthly presence of the Lord. So during those wilderness years when Israel was, was wandering through the desert, the glory of God, would actually, the, 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 it was called a glory cloud. The glory of God would, would rest upon this sacred chest, this Ark of the Covenant, which was housed within a, a, a tent-like structure known as the tabernacle. And, and every time that Israel would arrive at a new location and they would make camp, the tabernacle would be set up directly in the middle of the camp. The Ark of God was right in the middle, right in the center. But now, By this time in our text, Israel's wandering years are over. And now David has secured their borders. He's established Jerusalem as their capital city. And now the king wants to secure a permanent residence for the ark of God right directly in the heart of the nation, in the capital, in the center. So notice in verse 1, look there. Notice how the temple is described as a palace. David starts uh, by saying this building project he's preparing for his son, it's a very great work for the palace will not be for man, but for the Lord God. So David's point here is that this building they're building is not just a place where God's people can get together and fellowship. No, this, this is a sacred space. This is going to be a sacred space where you go in order to be in the presence of God. That's the purpose of the temple. That's what it was intended to serve. It was going to be a palace for God. Now, of course, don't misunderstand him. David knew better than to think that he was building an actual house for God, as if the Lord was actually going to reside here. Like like David's theology is sound enough to know that God is spirit, that God is omnipresent, that he's everywhere, that you can't contain him in one building. I mean, David is the same man who wrote Psalm 139, which is the the, the well-known psalm that is exalting the Lord as this omnipresent spirit. So clearly, David's theology is sound enough to know You can't contain God here. But while he understood that no structure could ever contain the infinite God, he did believe that this temple that he hopes to build, or he hopes his son will build, that this temple will be a sacred space where the Lord would uniquely manifest himself as his people gather to worship. There's going to be a unique 
manifestation of the Lord when the people of God come together to worship him at the temple. And friends, that's exactly how we see a church's building. This is where we gather to worship in order to be in the presence of the Lord. Now, let's be clear here. Let's be very clear. We are not directly equating a church's building or this building with the temple of God. Okay, there's, there's no direct correlation there. And, you know, I'm not even comfortable describing this place as the house of God. I know that's a common way of describing a, a, a church, church's building, it's the house of God. I, I don't even like using that language because I don't want to make that confusion there. This is not the temple. There's a very big difference between the temple of God and any church's building. So for example, for worshipers under the old covenant, there was only one authorized place where they could go to worship God. And after it was constructed, the temple was it. That was the authorized place. Try to worship God anywhere else, and you're risking idolatry. You can only worship God at the temple. But for worshipers under the new covenant, well, the worship of God takes place in Christ. Not specifically in a building, but in a person, in Christ Jesus, who is, we're told, the new temple. And our worship is not limited to just one location or to just one type of space. And so that means churches can worship in any location where two or three or more are gathered in Jesus' name. And that can take place in a variety of spaces. It could be, of course, in a dedicated building like this, or it can be in a rented theater, or maybe a local school auditorium, or just under a tree. It can happen anywhere. Because Christ is the ultimate temple of God. That is, you go to Christ if you now want to be in the presence of God. And so what that means is that Christian worship is now very mobile and very adaptable. Just as long as you are gathered together in Jesus' name to worship him. That's where it can, that's where it can take place. So, so please, let's not get the wrong impression here. I don't want you to make a direct correlation between the temple in Jerusalem and our building. But having said that, at the same time, the two are similar in the sense that a church building is designed to house the corporate worship of God. And in the church's corporate worship, the Lord's presence is uniquely manifested in a manner that is not found outside of corporate worship. As Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 18, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there, I, there am I among them. There's something special. There's something unique. When the people of God gather in Jesus' name to worship him, there is a manifestation of his presence among us that's not found when we scatter from this place. So it's that particular manifestation of the omnipotent God that we long for every time we gather together as the church around word and sacrament. We want believers and unbelievers alike to fall on their faces in worship declaring that God really is among us. That's what we hope happens in this church building all the time. And the, so that's what makes a church's building important. 
Now, they're, they're definitely not essential for corporate worship to take place, but a building is certainly helpful. So that's why we allocate resources to the renovation and the expansion of our facilities because we want to maintain a sacred space where the Lord God uniquely manifests, manifests himself whenever his people gather together to worship. Now, there's more we could say. Think about how the temple in Jerusalem was not just a building where sacred rituals would take place. Think about how it was a place for ministry. Ministry took place in the temple. It's where the ministry of the word took place, where the preaching and teaching of the law happened. The temple is also where ministry for the poor was conducted. It was where alms were given. It was where alms were distributed, where the poor and needy came in order to find mercy and compassion. So my whole point here, friends, is that when David encouraged the people to give towards the construction of the temple, they were ultimately giving towards the advancement of ministry. And so, of course, friends, in the same way, when you give to our building project, don't merely look at it as giving towards the construction of a building. No, that, that's just way too narrow of a vantage point. Look at it instead as giving towards all the various ministries, including the ministry of the word and ministries for the poor, that are going to be better facilitated by a newly expanded and renovated building. So it's not just about a building. It is about all the ministry that can take place in and through a building. That's what it's about. So that's the, that's, that's the scope of the building project that, that David was uh, engaged in. And I've touched a little bit about, about the scope of what we're trying to do as well. So we placed ourselves in their shoes in that sense, considering the scope. Now let's consider the sacrificial example of their king. When the people witnessed the abundant generosity of their king, notice how they were moved to give freely and wholeheartedly. That really is, of course, the power of sacrificial generosity. It has the power to change hearts. So let's look again at verse 2. David says, So I have provided for the house of my God so far as I was able, the gold for the things of gold, the silver for the things of silver, and the bronze for the things of bronze, the iron for the things of iron, and the wood for the things of wood, besides great quantities of onyx and stones for setting, antimony, colored stones, all sorts of precious stones, and marble. That right there is what he already set aside in the royal treasury, earmarked, for this building project. And then, notice in verse 3, the king goes on to say that in addition to all of that, he practically empties out his personal treasury. He says, I have a treasure of my own, of gold and silver, and because of my devotion to the house of my God, I give it. I give it to the house of my God. Now that Hebrew word there for treasure that's actually a technical term referring to the king's private reserve fund. It served as insurance for the royal family in case of any unforeseen political misfortune or any national calamity. It was insurance money. It was an insurance fund. So you normally would never touch that. You wouldn't just draw from it for normal projects. And the amount of gold and silver mentioned in verse 4 
are so astronomically large. I mean, this is like estimated in, in the billions in modern currency that it means David likely emptied out his personal treasury. Like, this is not like a billionaire just donating a million dollars. Like for, for that guy, a million dollars is nothing. It's like a drop in the bucket. That's why, friends, that's why you have to understand that the size of your giving is not as important as the significance of your giving. You see, for, for us, for, for most of us, a million dollars would be a significant donation. I mean, that would be usually significant if any one of us gave it. But it would be insignificant for a, a Jeff Bezos or an Elon Musk. I mean, that's, that would be like nothing for them. If they were to, to you read in the news, they donated a million dollars. You're like, ah, okay, yeah, that's kind of a, a weak donation for them. They could do far more than that. And that's why Jesus could say, without exaggerating, that that poor widow who just donated two small copper coins, that she gave more than all the rich people who were dumping bags of gold into the offering box. It's because they, those rich people, they were just giving out of their abundance while she, Jesus says, gave out of her poverty. Their donation certainly was greater in size, but hers was greater in significance. Well, when it came to David's donation to the temple building fund out of his personal treasury, well, it was great in both size and significance. Because when he gave, he made a true sacrifice. Uh, he took a big risk here. That was his insurance fund. Now his safety net is gone. His generosity was so great that it actually affected his life. Like David essentially sacrificed the kind of lifestyle that was viewed as a divine right for any ancient Near Eastern king. I mean, no one in those days would have expected David to give to such a degree. So when the people saw that, when they saw his sacrificial example, which came at great personal cost, it freed them. It freed them to give sacrificially as well. In verses 6 to 9, we're told that the leaders and the people were inspired to make extraordinary free will offerings. Considering, considering the amount here, the amount of gold and silver, bronze and iron and precious stones that were donated, there is no question that in doing so, their national GDP was significantly lowered. It affected them as well. So David wasn't the only one willing to sacrifice his lifestyle. They all were willing to do so. They all followed in his steps. So listen to verse 9. What's the result? Then the people rejoiced because they had given willingly. For with a whole heart they had offered freely to the Lord. David the king also rejoiced greatly. And notice with me in the text how it says that they gave freely. That, that, that use of that word there means that there was nothing mandatory when it came to giving to this building fund. I mean, this, this was not a tax. Like, like, taxes are mandatory. No one has ever freely given to a tax. You just do it because you're supposed to. But this was different. People were freely and wholeheartedly giving, and they were giving a lot. 
And I think it's particularly interesting that the people are described as freely giving. The terminology there implies that they were, they were freed from something. That, that something had been holding them back. And now the people were liberated to give. Which means that there must have been something there in their hearts enslaving them, holding them back. But after they witnessed the sacrifice by their king, that bondage is broken. And now they are free to freely give. So, what could it have been? What's that bondage? What was holding them back? Well, friends, it's clear that it was it's the love of money. The love of money, which is, which is talked about plenty in the Old and in the New Testament. I mean, Jesus himself, one of the most common things that he talked about was the love of money and the subsequent problem of greed. So previously, the people of God here, before they saw what David did, they, they were enslaved, enslaved by the love of money. Now, now, perhaps not because they just loved to spend a whole lot of money because they just loved a, a very, living a very lavish lifestyle. No, they, they could have actually been very frugal with their money. But what they loved was not a lavish lifestyle, but security, being safe. Or what they loved with lots of money is the status that it would provide them in the eyes of others. So what this means is that big spenders and big savers can both be enslaved to the love of money. But once they saw David freely sacrificing, freely giving out of, out of, out of sacrificing his own personal security, and, and he was spurning the status of an ancient Near Eastern king, when they saw that, something in their hearts changed. They were liberated to freely give in like manner. Their, their hearts were no longer torn between a love for God and a love for money. No, now they had whole hearts, wholly devoted to the Lord. And that's why they were able to give freely and wholeheartedly to now to this temple building fund. So look back at verse 9 and notice how this effort to raise enough funds to build a temple it felt nothing like, you know, a guilt-inducing push or, you know, a high-pressure campaign. Nothing like that. Talking about money, talking about giving away a significant portion of it to the Lord, it wasn't an awkward task for them. Look at verse 9. It was a joyful task. It was cheerful. There was lots of rejoicing going on when, when they were talking about this. Then the people rejoiced because they had given willingly for with a whole heart they had offered freely to the Lord. David the king also rejoiced greatly. All right, now, now we got to dig deeper here. We got to figure out where did this joy come from? Like why was their experiencing, why was their experience of a fundraising effort so different than what most churches go through today? Like pastors Let's be honest. I mean, I'll be honest. Usually feel awkward talking about this and, and, and sound apologetic whenever the subject of fundraising comes up. And members feel uncomfortable or annoyed to have to sit through it. So what's happening here? I mean, no one, I mean, no one assumes 
that congregational rejoicing is going to be the first response to a fundraising campaign. So, so what's happening here to the people of God in 1 Chronicles 29? What is their source of joyful generosity? That leads, of course, to our third point here. And the simple answer is this. The simple answer, of course, is God. God is the source. The generosity of David and his people towards God was made possible by God himself. David makes that abundantly clear when you look at his prayer, where he, in his prayer, tells the Lord that we're only giving to you what already belongs to you. Look at verse 14. Verse 14, but who am I and what is my people that we should be able to thus offer willingly for all things come from you and of your own have we given you? So we know that David and his people donated a great amount of resources, but they knew that they had absolutely nothing to boast about. They didn't deserve any praise. They didn't deserve any congratulations. That's why David humbly asks, who am I? And who are we, O Lord, that you would enable us to give freely and wholeheartedly, to give so generously We don't deserve the honor of being able to experience such joy in generosity. That's what he's saying. By the Lord, but but the Lord by, by his grace, the Lord by his grace just abundantly blesses them with wealth and riches so that they can then turn around and give it back to the construction of a temple and also to the advancement of ministry. And, of course, to the provision of a sacred space where God is uniquely present. So listen to what David prays in verse 16, something similar. O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. Well, church, we find ourselves in the exact same position. Everything that we give to God already belongs to God. And so when you give generously to the Lord, the last thing you should be feeling is pride. That's the last response you should have. Rather, it should be gratitude. Joyous gratitude that you had the privilege, that God gave you the honor of experiencing a joyful generosity. That should be our attitude. You see, what David is doing for us here in this prayer is that he's giving us some practical theology. That's what he's doing. He's he's highlighting, if you notice in this prayer, he's highlighting a particular attribute of God and he's drawing out practical implications. That's what practical theology is meant to do. And he knows as well that Only good theology is going to be able to move your heart and enable you to sacrificially give and and to do so joyfully. And so let's look more closely at his prayer. So before he draws this conclusion that we, as we just saw in verse 14, that everything we give to God already, already belongs to him, notice what he had been highlighting prior to that in verses 10 to 13. He's been highlighting a particular attribute of God, the sovereignty of God. 
Verse 11, yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. You are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might and in your hand is to make great and to give strength to all. Friends, do you hear what he's saying here? David is emphasizing the fact that God is the ultimate sovereign which is why he possesses absolute sovereignty over all things. All things belong to him, all things including all of your money and resources. It's his. So what are are some other practical implications of this sovereignty of God? Look at verse 15. For we are strangers before you and sojourners, as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow, and there is no abiding. If you think about it, it's kind of surprising to hear David describe himself and his fellow Israelites as sojourners because we know that by this point, he's already secured Israel's borders and he's established Jerusalem as the capital city. The nation is at the peak of its glory. And yet, when David reflects on the sovereignty of God, on God's infinite greatness and power, he acknowledges that his own sovereignty as king of Israel just pales in comparison. Next to the Lord, David is but a temporary sojourner on this earth. He is but a passing shadow. In other words, reflecting on God's sovereignty reminds us of our transient nature, that our time here on earth is short, and that, of course, is going to remind us of the transience of our treasures on earth. Here, moth and rust destroy. Thieves will break in and steal. And so only the fool is going to spend his passing days storing up money and being stingy with it. That would be foolish. Sound theological reflection is what you need. It has the ability to loosen your grip on earthly treasures, especially, especially if you are a child of God with heavenly treasures in store. If you know, if you realize the inheritance of heaven that is securely yours in Christ, then why in the world would you grip so tightly the fleeting treasures on this earth? I mean, just imagine a, a, a child prince A child prince who finds a few small coins and goes around clinging so tightly to these coins, unwilling to share them, crying his eyes out when when he loses one of them. That prince is going to grow up one day and one day come into possession of his royal inheritance and then he's going to realize just what foolish behavior that was when he was a child. Christians, Do you see, we would be acting even more foolishly if we cling to our money and if we fail to freely share it during our days here on this earth. Since our inheritance is the kingdom of heaven itself, in Christ we are far richer than we think. We have really no reason at all to be stingy. We have a great inheritance 
waiting for us. And that's, and that's because we worship a God. We worship a God that is the complete opposite of stingy. And he's like that, of course, because he is absolutely sovereign. If all things belong to him, including all of our money and all of our resources, then whenever you are in the middle of a fundraising campaign for a building project, just like the Israelites were, it's important to remember that in the end, keep this in mind, God doesn't need your money. And he doesn't need a temple, much less a church building. What God is after is not a fancy new building. It's your heart. That's what God is after. The Lord wants to free your heart. He wants to change it. He wants to conform it into the likeness of his. And how exactly is God going to do that? How is he going to change your heart? How is he going to liberate you from the love of money so that you can joyfully give with free hearts and whole hearts? Well, friends, it's going to happen in the same way that it happened for the Old Testament people of God through another sacrificial example performed by another king. But not just another ancient king far removed from you, no, but by your king, by the king of kings, the ultimate sovereign who reigns over you, the one who deserves your highest allegiance, but the one to whom you have been utterly disloyal. But instead of giving you what you deserve, he shows you amazing grace. Like David, this king set aside his divine rights. Like David, he didn't just give out of his abundance. Like David, his gift was both great in size and in significance. This king, he also made a huge sacrifice. But unlike David, this king didn't just sacrifice his lifestyle. He sacrificed his life. Jesus gave away the most priceless treasure in all the universe, his own life, in order to win your heart and to free you from the love of money. So friends, when when you can see through eyes of faith such an amazing sacrificial example and one that is done on your behalf for you, It cannot but change you. Your loves and your priorities are reordered. Your attitude towards money is now different. You're no longer anxious when you hear exhortations to give to the Lord and to his work. When you hear that now, it's your joy. You become a cheerful giver, just like Jesus, just like our Lord. So let me conclude with a clear and direct exhortation for our church members here to give and to give generously to this building project that we have. Go visit the table. That's right there. I can see it right there in the lobby. Go visit that table right afterwards and and learn more details about this project. Or or go visit our website and find out more more there. Sign up for a, a slot to pray to pray every single week for this pledge campaign and and pick up while you're there a pledge card and go before the Lord in prayer. Take that pledge card, take your Bible, and why don't you use David's prayer here in 
chapter 29, as a, as a guide, as a model for you to pray over how much you're going to pledge to this campaign. And then, of course, as the Lord leads you, as you determine how much of God's own money that he has given over to you to faithfully steward, how, how much of that, how much of that does he want you to now give to the renovation and expansion of this church building and to the advancement of all the various kinds of ministries that are going to take place here and, of course, to the provision of a sacred space where the Lord is uniquely present whenever his people gather in his name. How much will you pledge so that you can experience the same joy as the people of God that we find here in Scripture? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for the reminder that it gives to us of just how good and how great you are, how much you have blessed us to be a blessing. And so as we give, as we seek the advancement of your work here in this city, we do so with hearts that are free and wholeheartedly devoted to you. And Lord, if there is any anxiety, if there is any division within our hearts, may you lead us to repentance and may you lead us to joy. In Jesus' name we pray.